You can stay standing as Mr. Josh Thiessen comes up to the front. All right, my there we go. Awesome. Well, it's glad uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. Uh, excited to be with you and to spend uh, your Wednesday morning, which I'm sure all of you are uh, bright-eyed and uh, ready to be at school this morning. And uh, you get me first, which I don't know if it's good or bad, because first means you're probably, you know, not bored with your day yet. But it's also uh, just right after everybody's got up. So, uh, but it's exciting to. Be here to talk about what's most important, and that is what uh, the Lord has has for us this morning in His Word. I know you've been in the Gospel of Mark, and my assignment this morning is from Mark chapter 14. So you can turn with me there, Mark chapter 14, and we'll go ahead and we'll read these first 11 verses of Mark chapter 14. Mark writes... This it says now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how after seizing him in secret, they might kill him. For they were saying not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon, the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work for me. Or to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand with for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money and began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Father, we come now as we look to learn from your word with open eyes, just desiring that your Spirit would illuminate our hearts and that we would not only hear the words, but we would also see how there are implications for our own lives as we look at this picture of love and of what a true disciple of yours looks like. As we just ask now that you would be honored in the time that we have. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. What time do I have till? Is there a bell that rings? Okay, I'm just being respectful. You guys, we're fine if I take up school, right? <laughs> um, how many of you guys have dogs? How many of you guys own the best dog in the world? Everyone has, like, if it's your dog, by definition, it is the best dog in the world. I have two dogs. Um, I have a golden retriever, and I have a black lab. Uh, they're supposed to be similar dogs, 
In the Golden Retriever world, there is field-bred Goldens and there are show-bred Goldens. You're probably used to seeing show-bred Goldens, which have the long, flowy coat, and they're big, and they're fat, and they're lovable, and they're kind, um, and they do their own thing. The field-bred Golden side is supposed to be from the hunting lines. And so I bought my field-bred Golden with the high hopes of this would be, which he's a littler Golden, he's skinny, he's fast, but he's not the most obedient dog in the world. And so I wanted him so bad to be a good hunting dog, he failed me. That's okay. I bought my next dog, my black lab, who is my hunting buddy. And what I love about my lab, Maggie, which my son is here and he'll vouch for this, Maggie and I have a far superior relationship. And that's because Maggie and I communicate really well. Because Maggie is hardwired that if I have what she wants, which is not food, it is a ball or a bumper, if you're familiar with little bumpers they throw to retrieve, she will pretty much look at me, and I have taught her, basically, do what I say, and you will get the reward. And she absolutely trusts me. And I almost brought her this morning just as, because it would be kind of fun. I thought, you guys are a little old for that. The next group might think it's kind of fun. Um, but, you know, I can pretty much, I can have her sit and stay sat over there. She'd sit there the entire time. I can call her over here. She'd heal. I can have her basically run down a mark. Uh, I do a little bit of AKC, uh, American Kennel Club, testing with her, hunt tests. And uh, she's a blast with that, but it's all built on trust. And if you're working with training dogs, which this is kind of my first dog that I've worked with, or really you could say second, um, it's all about building trust, that she trusts me that if she, if I tell her to sit and stay sat, that she has the confidence to sit and stay sat and know that she's going to be fine. If I send her into the middle of the field and she can't see anything, and she doesn't know anything's out there, she has to trust me that if I send her out there, she's going to find something. So it's all about building trust and building confidence. Now, that's a dog. But we can learn something from that in that having a relationship and having a relationship built on absolute trust is easier to be obedient. When you have actually listened and you have learned, which is a part of discipleship, but then you've gone beyond that where you actually trust now when you don't understand. So you don't know what's at the end of the road. You don't know where the reward is, but you trust that he has promised that there is a reward, that there is something that even though you can't see, you absolutely trust, in this case, the master, not the dog owner like me, but the master, that what he's saying is true. I know you guys have worked through the Gospel of Mark, and so I don't want to recount everything, but Mark has a unique emphasis. Hopefully you've seen that as people have taught through the Gospel of Mark. It's different than Luke, it's different than Matthew, it's different than John, and it has a different purpose. And so it tells the story of Christ from a different lens. It's very likely that this is an audience that is a Roman audience, that it is an account from Peter, who John Mark, who's the writer here, which you encounter probably at the end of this Gospel, and for sure you encounter him in uh, the book of Acts, and that he gets a lot of the eyewitness accounts from Peter. And so he is sharing the story of Christ. He is telling the story of Christ with a very unique lens, trying to accomplish something that is unique to Mark. Particularly, I think, looking towards the absolute authority that this Roman world would understand of Christ. And so when we come to chapter 14, a couple of threads I want to pull on through the book of Mark to help make sense of why he tells the story the way he tells the story here in Mark is that you have a story out of place. And I know the story's out of place because you can flip over to the Gospel of John 
and you're going to get this same story with a little more detail, and you're going to find out that it does not follow verse 2 chronologically. Because we find out in verses 1 and 2 that the time is the Passover unleavened bread are two days away. And so he's recounting the story chronologically to say this is Wednesday before Friday. But then when you get to the Gospel of John, we understand this happens the week before Passover. Now that's not an issue because Mark is trying to carry this thematic story and he's pulling this story and putting it in a very specific place to emphasize something very, very important. So we're going to see that in a moment. But one of the threads that I want to kind of pull on with discipleship is throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's been trying to teach lessons about what it means to follow Christ. And if you go back to Mark chapter 4 really quick, and you're going to see all of the parables. And I just love the way it's worded in chapter 4. When he's teaching them, verse 2, many things in the parables and saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. And so much of what follows and so much of what the call to discipleship is going to be throughout the book of Mark is going to be listen, listen, listen. And he's going to share these parables, which have hidden truths, but he doesn't leave them hidden to his disciples. He explains them like the parable of the sower, the parable of the seeds or the soils in verse 13. And he explains what I mean by the, the road and the, and, the, and the seed, the word of God that's cast out there and the rocky places and the thorns and the good soil. And he goes in verse 24, beware that you listen to by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you and more will be given to you. And you keep fast forwarding about the nature of the kingdom in verse 30. And that kingdom is going to start small like a mustard seed, but it's going to explode into something much, much larger. And I think it goes into verse 35 through 41 and the calming of the storm, because as disciples, they're fearing that they're going to die. But if they were listening, he just said the kingdom's going to start small and going to become this massive thing like a mustard seed into this big bush. They're not going to die. If they truly were listening, they could trust. They're not going to die in the sea because the kingdom is about to explode. And so in a similar way, throughout the Gospel of Mark here, what we've just had in chapter 13 is these passages uh, multiple times, at least three times, where Jesus has told them, and I'm sure many more, that he is going to die. And so if you go to Mark chapter 8, with Peter's confession, right after his confession in chapter 8, Jesus says, you're right, but there's another part of this story. And so, yes, you're right that I am the Christ, and you think that I'm going to come and I'm going to establish my kingdom right away. And he's like, no, there's something that precedes the kingdom, and that is going to be suffering. And so in chapter 8, verse 31... He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Peter doesn't understand. He's doing something very precarious. He rebukes Jesus. He takes him aside and began to rebuke him, verse 32. 
And Jesus says, Peter, no. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan, if you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. We'll go chapter 9, verse 30. Again, he foretells about his death, teaching his disciples. Verse 31, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. And then Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They're on the road, going to Jerusalem. And again, Jesus is reminding them of what is going to happen. Verse 33, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be Betray, betrayed to the chief priests, the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. They've seen all of the miracles of Jesus. Even Peter, James, John have seen the transfiguration up to this point. But the question at hand is, have they truly been listening? And then if they have been listening, do they trust that it'll work itself out in a way within God's plan where it'll work out for, as Romans 8, 28 says, for our good and for his glory? That's the question that arises for discipleship. Because what we're going to see here in 14 is two different, I would say, individuals who listen. And there's a surprising contrast with who is listening. Because I think it demonstrates here, what we've seen over and over again, Peter's not listening. But interestingly enough, Judas is listening, and Mary is listening. And they're contrasted in a way because one listens and goes, I hear what you're saying. You're going to Jerusalem, and you're going to die, and I just wasted three years of my life. Three years I could have been out making a career, building wealth, and I spent it following you. And now what I invest in you is going to be just gone. And he's going to say, I might as well get something out of this because he could see the writing on the wall. The chief priests, verses 1 and 2, were going to seek to kill him. So he might as well get a little bit of money on the way out. It's a bust, the investment that he has made in Jesus, and he might as well get out. But what I find interesting about it is he at least, it seems, was listening. He believed what Jesus was saying. He saw the writing on the wall. But he didn't trust. And the contrast is with Mary, who does trust. In the Gospel of Mark here, verse 3, we don't know from this account that it's Mary. She is nameless. But again, from John chapter 12, we know in the same event it is Mary. Who Mary? Mary, the sister of Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. And Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And so she's going to trust her Lord. I think probably she has had a unique place when you find Mary. Luke chapter 10, John chapter 11, John chapter 12, every single time you find her at the feet of Jesus listening. She's always listening. And she's even been given this gift of seeing her when I don't understand why didn't you come master when her brother has died and then he comes and then raises Lazarus from the dead. And that she's probably been given this uniquely to where she understands in a way that the other disciples don't. She saw Lazarus raised from the dead, and her faith is one and that is built on the trust of her master that she has sat and she has listened to. Luke 10 says she has chosen the wise thing over and over again, and her example here of her love for Christ, of her faith, becomes something, shockingly, verse 9, 
that here we are in March 15th, 2023, and someone is telling the story, fulfilling verse 9, that what this woman does here will be spoken of in memory of her and proclaimed throughout the whole world, even in Central City, Nebraska, this morning. But the contrast here, Mark does, as I said, it's not chronological, but that's not what Mark's trying to do. He's trying to bring these themes together. And he does so with kind of a unique literary device. So when I talk to the younger group in a little bit, I don't think I can use that word, but hopefully you guys can handle literary device. By that, I simply mean when you're writing a story, you use certain techniques. So you might use repetition, right? I'm going to repeat something over and over again, or I might um, use some type of poetry where I'm repeating the same phrase with different synonyms, different kind of, of this, different words, but the same meaning. But in this case, this is what's known in Mark throughout Mark, which people recognize, and there's three of them in 14 that they call a Markian sandwich. And they call it a Markian sandwich because there's something at the beginning and the end that are connected, like the bun, the top of the bun, the bottom of the bun, and there's something sandwiched in the middle that's seemingly unrelated, but has a theological point that makes sense of the things that are bracketing the two ends, the two bookends or the two buns. And this is probably one of the best examples in Mark. Like I said, there's actually three in chapter 14. And so the Lord's Supper is going to be bracketed. It's going to be sandwiched by the, the foretelling of the portrayal of the disciples. Or even as you get a little bit further, um, the Lord's Supper, as it's the betrayal of the disciples and the, uh, the defection of the disciples, sandwiches the Lord's Supper. You're going to see again it towards the end of this with Peter in this chapter where you're going to see it bracketed by his betrayal as well. And it's all there to make a theological point. And so he takes narrative and he puts this in here. He sandwiches it. It at first appearance seems unrelated, but yet it's the thing that allows you to see what he is trying to communicate. So let's look at the outside of this sandwich. Verses 1 and 2 is really, from a story standpoint, this is the setting. Now that throughout Passover, the unleavened bread, two days away. And so that's where we were at. He's just been foretelling of not only his death, but last, I don't know what it was for you last week or a couple weeks ago. He's also telling of the end of the world. This is kind of doom and gloom if you're listening. Somewhere in, I think, denial that this isn't going to happen, which seems to be Peter later in this chapter. But Mary seems to understand, I understand what's going on, and, and Judas is the other one. But they're at this point trying to seize him and kill him. But they say, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. There's kind of a tangent here of interesting where they're trying to do the very thing, trying to avoid the very thing that is exactly God's plan. And so you see his sovereign hand all over this, that at first they want to get him before the festival, and then they can't get him, so they want to get him after the festival. You could say it's Satan's plan, that he doesn't want him to die on Passover when the Passover lambs are being slain at 3 p.m. on Friday, because that's God's plan, because he is the Passover lamb for the world. And yet, all of this actually leads to him dying precisely when he is meant to, despite all of the things, they're back and forth, and them trying to avoid it during the festival. He's going to die during the festival. So again, it's God's plan here. Even the worst tragedy in human history, is still within God's plan, which is going to lead to the salvation of his people. But it's bracketed then by verse 10, which you could say, and there's a many way in which verse 2, you could jump to verse 10, and you wouldn't miss anything. 
And that's how these sandwiches work. Then Judas Iscariot, verse 10, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to, how to betray him at an opportune time. And so we're bracketed with understanding this story. They're looking for ways to kill him. And aha, it's going to be Judas. He wants his last bit. He's going to, out of greed, try to get a little bit in return for his wasted three years. And he's beginning to look. Well, then how does verse 3 through 9 explain and demonstrate a theological point? I think it demonstrates here the, the major point of this story that it is so unlikely that one of the 12, one of the insiders of this group who's walked with Christ for three years is going to betray Christ. And they're all going to say what act that Mary does that Jesus commends not just in that time, but for all of human history, all the 12 are going to chime in and go, what a waste. And it's an outsider who's going to demonstrate faith, who's going to demonstrate discipleship and following Jesus when she doesn't know how this is going to work. Or how can death lead to life? How can suffering perceive glory? But she demonstrates that she trusts the Lord, and it's going to illustrate I think a helpful point for us that proximity to Christ does not guarantee faithfulness. Proximity does not guarantee faithfulness. And it doesn't guarantee saving faith. And so for you, you're at a Christian school. Likely you grew up in a Christian home. You go to church on Sundays. Maybe you do youth group on Wednesday nights. Well, it's not enough to be around the Bible, to be around Christianity, to see the works of Christ. If it was, Judas would be a prime case where he saw many things you and I have never seen. He walked with Christ, yet he rejects him. Being a Christian is more than simply being around Christianity. It's the relationship element that Mary so helpfully demonstrates. She has a relationship with Christ. She's listening to Christ that is bleeding out a faith and an absolute trust in him. All right, let's look at verse three. And it says, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and some believe could be the father of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, perhaps it's a former leper because you wouldn't hang out with a leper if he was still one. And reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly pure nard, and she broke the jar and she poured it over his head. But half of this would be normal and expected. We've all been through that phase, or at least most, I think you guys have all been through that phase, which is there was a time when you didn't need deodorant. There's a time when you started realizing, I do. In this world, they're not taking showers every day. They've been outside. They've been walking. This is pretty common. This is the way they eat dinner, and they recline. And guess what's in your face, right? It's going to be feet and other things that probably are not, you imagine, I think correctly, not going to smell really good. And so they do have perfume, and it's commonly used 
as a way to deal with a terrible smell at dinner time. This makes sense. It's the washing of the feet. This is shocking. It's a little bit shocking of the cost of the perfume, but it's probably a family heirloom that you would use very sparingly at special occasions. A drop here, a drop there. But then that last part is what's shocking that she broke the jar and she poured it over his head. The value of this we're going to see is verse 5, 300 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. So 300, it's almost a year's wage. So what your teachers make an entire year is the values in this bottle and she just cracks it open and pours it out and there's no way to get it back. And so I think probably we at least understand the disciples in verse 4 that they're indignantly remarking in another, why has that perfume been wasted? Because they could have sold it. They could have given it to the poor. They could have given it to a Christian school, right? They could have helped somebody somewhere. And they scold her. How wasteful of you, Mary. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work to me. There's something unique going on in this week. There's something unique going on with the king being present in the world. There's something unique about to happen. This is the pinnacle of all redemptive history where the God-man, fully God, fully man, is going to give his life as a ransom for many. The poor you will always have, he says, verse 7. Whenever you wish to do good to them, you can do it. But you do not always have me. And so she has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. She seems to have an understanding of where Christ is going because she's been listening. Christ has told them all, I'm going to die. And she senses it soon. And she has this valuable perfume and says, this is all I have. I'm going to give it all. And Jesus says it was a good thing that she did. In fact, what she did, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did also will be spoken of in memory of her. She was willing to take a year's wages. With inflation, you know, maybe it used to be 50 grand, maybe it's now 100 grand. And she breaks it because that's all she has to give to him. And she says, I want to give it all. Why? Because she has been listening. And where she is willing to give away something so valuable, the contrast is verse 10 and 11, that Judas Iscariot is going for a measly few pieces of silver. He'll betray his Lord. When they heard this, they were glad. Verse 11, they promised to give him money. So it's interesting, right? One of the consistent things here is money, money. She doesn't care about money. She cares about Christ. But yet Judas, what he cares about is simply what can he get out of it. The two major lessons that have been taught throughout Mark and emphasized and illustrated here are that you need to listen 
to God's word. So just briefly, as you think about this, implicationally, number one, if you're looking or taking notes, two lessons on discipleship, number one is listen to God's word. Mary has listened. She sat at Jesus' feet. She has listened. She is paying attention. She's not just hearing information, just stories, but she's actually going, what does this mean? She's not trying to sugarcoat it. She's not trying to hear something else. She's accepting for what it is he's going to give his life. She understands, which is a really difficult lesson for all of us, that it's suffering that precedes glory. Because we have to go look back at what it means to follow Christ and take up our cross and follow after him, that your life will not be one straight line of happiness and joy and peace and tranquility. That's not what's promised. In fact, go back to 13. He's promising the world is going to get worse, and then there's going to be a great tribulation, which has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. In fact, he says in verse 20 of verse 13, or chapter 13, unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the life to whom he chose, he shortened the days. That is to say, there's a movement in scripture that things are going to get worse. His disciples are suffering, persecuted, martyred. And she goes, I know that's what the scripture says. Suffering precedes glory. What I'm promised awaits in heaven, which First Peter says in the midst of suffering is something imperishable that no one can take from you. And she's okay saying, I know it's down there. It's up in heaven. No one can touch it there. And I'm not expecting it with the wrong expectation to be in this life. Judas listened, but he made a different calculation. What is it to gain the world but lose your soul? That's the danger of Judas. And that's why listening is good and important. And, and throughout Scripture, listening really implies obedience to the Hebrew mind. Because you also, we think of listening and you can hear but not obey. You can hear, but not do. But we have to listen, number one, to God's word. And two, you're going to have to trust God's word. Because the trust is what leads to action. She didn't understand how this is all going to work out. She didn't have a crystal ball. like She can't look ahead. She doesn't know what we know, that he's going to rise from the dead. But she trusted, just like she trusted him with Lazarus, that he is good, and he will do what's right. She looks to the promises of God, like Romans 8, 28, and she says, I don't know why this is happening, but I know it's for my good, and it's for God's glory. There's an absolute conviction to trust in the Lord, that she's going to trust in him no matter what, not lean on her own understanding. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. One of my favorite illustrations of this is we kind of Close together. Because you, as a young person, are going to make these kinds of decisions about what is most valuable, what is worth the cost. All those choices you make now will have a massive impact on the rest of your life. And in Hebrews chapter 11, where you see what people call kind of that, that hall of faith, 
Look at verse 24. And I love the calculation that Moses makes. Because he chooses like Mary. There's only one way you can make that choice. And it's described here, simply chapter, verse 24 of chapter 11, by faith. By trusting the Lord, putting your faith and trust in him and saying, I am going to follow you no matter the cost. So it's by faith it says, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Because Moses gets adopted into Pharaoh's household. He is the prince of Egypt. But he chose, verse 25, he made a choice. Rather than be mistreated with, the, rather choosing, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches. That is, he'd rather be identified with his Savior who also suffered than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Faith is not seeing, right? There's a hope that we haven't seen. But true faith believes and trusts that God is good and true. And it trusts him in the midst of it, even if it comes with reproach, suffering, the loss of friendships, you're committed to following Christ rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin because you're looking towards a future reward, just like Mary. Why is she breaking this? Why is she spending? Why is she going, he just said the world's going to get really bad. I better save this. No. She trusts him and she knows that he will care for her. And in true discipleship, we are called to the very same thing, to not only listen but to trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look at an illustration such as this, which you have promised even then what the 12, yes, even Judas there, didn't understand. But what Mary did is that you want us to be completely devoted to you, to have an absolute trust in you and your plan, even when, and most importantly when, we don't fully understand. And may you burn this message into our hearts this morning as we will need it now and we need it in the future as we do face challenges and sufferings that nothing that we face will ever be as dark and dire as what Christ faced. What it would be to be with Christ, to walk with him on this earth, and to know he is headed to his own death, but to trust that there is purpose even in that. And that purpose is our salvation. And so we're thankful this morning for the gospel and thankful for what it means to be in Christ and let's pray for everyone who is here that they would have a relationship with Christ through faith in him, believing in him and what he has done on the cross, that he was raised from the grave, knowing that it is that relationship when fostered leads to trust.
and confidence in him to do things that the rest of the world will think makes no sense, just like Mary. But we know that you have a different economy, and we look forward to future rewards because we desire for you to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We just ask these things in your son's name. Amen.